0: All right, thank you, Greg. appreciate that. Hey, I'm just so grateful for our worship team, for our tech team. Can we give them just some love? So you may, you may have noticed, we, there's actually, my wife said to me, honey, I just now noticed there's big scaffolding, like on the stage. She'd been worshiping for, you know, several songs. but uh, So this just represents the hard work that our uh, tech team and tech guys put into what we do here and, uh, and, you know, I, I said this first service, but uh, walking in first service, I just was looking around and I would see somebody, you know, over here that I loved and somebody over there that I loved and I know loves me and then somebody else over here that I love and I know loves me. And uh, I'm just uh, so, so grateful. Anytime that someone asks me what I enjoy most about uh, ministry at Shelbyville Community Church, I always say, and I always mean it, the amazing collection of people that I get to do life with I'm so so grateful for that for you and uh, for this place okay so hey we're in a uh, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians and last week Pastor Mike I thought Pastor Mike did a masterful job last week didn't you think he did a great job I did too I thought he was awesome of walking us through Ephesians chapter 4 and essentially here's what he reminded us of he said look We have to use our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our unique shape to serve others in the body. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in that section. Here's what it says. God gave pastors to equip God's people for works of service. And what's so mind-blowing about that verse is that is not the way church works in many, many churches across our country. Because here's the way church works. People will they'll say, hey, we're going to hire a pastor, and we will watch him or her go out and do the work of the ministry. And we will watch. You know, hey, we're going to let the professionals do it. But that is not the way the Bible says church should work, right? No, pastors aren't given to do the ministry, pastors are given to equip God's people. For works of service so my job is to equip you to call you to coach you in the ministry and and again I'm so grateful that SCC has always given me that freedom uh, since the very very beginning Um, I'm grateful to use it in that way but today we're going to see that not only do we need to serve the body but that we have to be the body for one another. In other words, that we have to act and live in a way that is congruent with the identity, the new life that Jesus came to bring. So here's the way Paul unpacks this. He says, I tell you and insist on it in the Lord. In other words, it's that important that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their thinking. Now we've said before that a Gentile is anyone uh, in this room who is uh, non-Jewish, and so that would be um, probably 100% of us, right? Would be Gentiles, and it's important to understand that he's pointing out just the way that people tend to live apart from God and so the first thing he notes is that this is just how what people drift to where they end up apart from God he says that they end up in the futility of their thinking and he's pointing out something really important here that left to themselves people will serve only themselves that they will do what feels good not necessarily what is good, that they will do what is easiest, not always what is best. And he calls this kind of thinking futile. Now, that word indicates aimlessness, it indicates purposelessness. So, one of the things we're being told here that's so amazing about the gospel is that the gospel brings with it a transformation from aimlessness to Purpose, purposefulness, to, to purpose, to meaning. Um, and he goes on and he says this, they are darkened. So not only are they uh, living futilely or aimlessly, he says here's why. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now that word for hardening is a word we would use Uh, in English, for calluses. So, for example, many, many years ago, um, I used to play piano, or a not piano, guitar right here on this stage and when I used to play a lot of guitar I had built up calluses you know on the very end of my fingers but because I've set the guitar down now for so many years if I were to pick it back up again it would be literally painful to play it after just a couple of minutes because the calluses on the end of my fingers they're all gone. Well, what Paul is telling us here, friends, is it's possible for you and me to walk through life with calloused hearts. Hearts that are insensitive to the heart of God, hearts that are insensitive to the mind of God, hearts that are insensitive or calloused to the work of God. And so a calloused heart causes us to be darkened In our understanding of God. Now, a darkened heart just thinks that life is random. In other words, there is no purpose, there is no meaning. But a heart that is open to God, that's soft to God, that's sensitive to God, knows that every day is laced with purpose and with meaning. That every single day of your life and mine ripples out into eternity in a way that matters. So, Paul's telling us that one of the amazing things about this new identity that Jesus gives us is he takes us out of the futility of our thinking and he, uh, you know, gives us purpose, brings meaning into our lives. And then he goes on to describe how a calloused heart behaves. In other words, the way it affects the person that built up those calluses in the first place. Here's how he says it. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. I want you to underline that word. We'll come back to it in a minute. So as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now that word uh, sensuality is a very, very difficult word to unpack from Greek to English. It's pregnant with meaning, um, and so it's difficult to translate, but I'm going to try, and I'm going to use a little different word. When he says they've given themselves to all kind, over to all kinds of sensuality, I think the best word to use there is pleasure, the word pleasure. In other words, they've given themselves over to all sorts of pleasure, and because they've given themselves over primarily to pleasure, uh, they just indulge in every kind of impurity because pleasure has become the end game, the goal of their lives. Uh, and, and the problem with pleasure, he writes, is no matter how much you satisfy an itch, another itch will always rise up. We have a continual lust for more. Uh, so I want you to notice the, the, the trap of this kind of life. There's, there's never enough. I mean in other words it says so that continual lust for more right there is no satisfying sin let me give you some examples so take pornography for example it takes more and more and more right so if someone looks at pornography one time is that gonna forever satisfy uh, their lust or their needs no, of course not, right? No, if, if they satisfy their lust today with pornography, later in the day or tomorrow another desire is going to rise up. And this is how people become addicted to pornography. because you, And you may start out with uh, you know, a certain type of porn, porn, right? And then you need to go deeper and deeper and deeper in order to get the same kind of satisfaction, the same kind of effect. This is why people get addicted to pornography. Let's think about romance. Romance is one of the primary idols in our day so in other words this idea that hey if I find the one if I find him if if I find her then I'll be happy she will make me happy he will make me happy I'm somehow not complete without them this is a huge idol in our culture so let's look at how the continual lust for more develops in a romantic relationship so almost all of us have dated someone at one point or time in our lives And I want you to think about back to when you were dating someone and the very first time you ever held their hand and you're like, oh, that was so amazing just to hold their hand, right? But then the next day, just holding their hand didn't, you know, it didn't arouse the same kind of passion and feeling, right? So you need to go a little further. So now you need to hold one another. And I want you to remember the first time you just ever held that person, right, that you fell in love with. But then the next time you get together, just holding them doesn't work anymore, so now we have to kiss. Well, then the next time you get together, a kiss doesn't do it, so now you need to kiss passionately. You need to hold one another more tightly, right? Well then, that doesn't work anymore. You need more to elicit the same feeling. And this is called the law of diminishing returns. And it's what a continual lust for more looks like in our everyday life. See, uh, see no matter how far you go, you will need to go further the next time in order to to elicit the same feeling see lust is never satisfied it enslaves and it traps let me give you tell you a story about this there's an old story actually about how an Eskimo used to kill a wolf in the Arctic so here's how he would do it first the Eskimo would coat his knife blade with animal blood and he would allow it to freeze then he would continue to dip that knife in blood and allow each of those layers to freeze until in effect what you have is a popsicle for wolves and so what they would then do is once they would get enough layers of blood on that knife is they would take the knife and bury it in the ground in the frozen tundra with the knife blade sticking up out of the ground and so then the wolf would come his sensitive nose would smell that blood and he would go to it, and he would begin to lick that knife, to lick the the blood off that knife. And, And as his desire is aroused, and he's getting more and more excited by that blood, he begins to lick that blade harder and harder and harder, and pretty soon he doesn't realize it, but he is literally drinking his own blood. He is literally destroying himself. And isn't it true that in the early stages of our addictions, our addictions seem to serve us. But in the middle of our addictions, we begin to serve our addictions. Like that wolf, our continual lust for more causes us to do things in the names of our addictions, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's pornography, that literally harm ourselves. We begin to feed on ourselves on our very lives on our families on our children now, i think a wolf is an excellent example of this continual lust for more the wolf's desire for blood is going to become so great so incensed that he will literally consume himself and not even know it so um so Yeah, I'm just saying this, that when we live without a moral compass, just doing what feels good, what is pleasurable. In other words, when we live like the world lives, we just make pleasure the end game. We will engage in any form of impurity that we can in order to create that pressure. There's no stopping it. And here's why, because if you satisfy one urge, another urge is going to rise up and take its place. And then he goes on to say this, You, however, did not come to know Christ in that way. In other words, it's no longer about simply fulfilling your bodily urges. Jesus has given you a new life, a new spirit, a new heart, a new name. It's a new day. You have to live in a way that's congruent with that. You can't keep living the way you used to live. Just fulfilling whatever bodily urge rises up. And then he goes on to say this. You were taught... With regard to your former way of life, let's stop there. I'm just, here's what I just want to take a note of. He is assuming that every single one of us in the wor- in this room, used to live that way at some point in our lives. That we were, we lived, we thought futilely, we were darkened in our understanding, and we had hearts that were insensitive to God. That that's, that's part of every one of our past. But he said, hey, that's in your past. You don't, have to live that way anymore right And he goes on to say this oh sorry he says this you were taught in accordance with the truth that is in christ jesus to put off your old self which is being corrupted by deceitful desires now He calls these desires that rise up, these these urges, this sense for pleasure, he calls it deceitful. Now, why would he do that? Why would he call these desires deceitful? Well, it's because they promise fulfillment, but they bring shame and death. In other words, take so let's say drinking, for example. Hey, if I take this drink, I'm going to feel better in the moment. Right? But then I need to take another drink to keep that feeling, and then I need to take another drink because that feeling isn't good enough, so now I need to step it up a notch. So the point is, you know, the drinking promises initially that it will alleviate your pain. But then it begins to cause your pain, and you begin to feed on yourself. You see how this works? This is why they're deceitful. In other words, these desires promise us something that they don't deliver on. We think they'll bring us happiness or freedom or relief, but the reality is it just makes life worse. And so he uses this language here of putting on and taking off so he says you I want you to take in the same way that you would take a shirt on and off I want you to take off the old mindset that old, old way of thinking and living and I want you to put on the new mindset that's been created in Christ Jesus and I want you to notice something here notice here that this new self has been created In other words it already exists it's not something you have to aspire to it's not something you have to try to become it is something that Jesus has already said that you are you just have to live out of that you just have to live congruent with that it's so important he says put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, for many of us, I don't know about you, I'm a Colts fan, and I'd be the first to admit that the Indianapolis Colts were not that great, that that fun to watch last year, right? But this year, if you're aware, if you keep up with this kind of thing, the, the Indianapolis Colts actually made a quarterback change in the offseason. They traded away Carson Wentz, and they picked up a guy by the name of Matt Ryan. Now, um, uh Matt Ryan is a former uh, M- MVP, and, or at least a candidate for the MVP, and they, he almost won a Super Bowl with the Atlanta Falcons. So for 14 years, Matt Ryan wore Falcons red, right, he, uh, he played in Falcon Stadium, or popularly known as Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and he lived in Falcon's territory. I mean, he could probably drive blindfolded from his house to Mercedes-Benz Stadium there in Atlanta, right? So for a decade and a half, Matt Ryan had the mindset of a Falcon. You might say that was his identity, But Matt Ryan has now been given a completely new identity. He is no longer a falcon, now he is a colt. He will no longer put on a red jersey. From now on, he will put on a blue jersey. Furthermore, he will no longer put on the number two, right? He'll put on a new number, Um, according to his choosing he is going to play for a different coach for a different team and for a different owner he's going to have to learn a new scheme a new terminology he's going to have to get to know new teammates he's going to have to learn how to get around in a new city right once he buys a home in indian Tries to figure out how to drive, you know, to Lucas Oil Stadium. This is going to require Matt Ryan to have a completely new mindset. And Ephesians 4, what Ephesians 4 right here is telling you and I, is that when you became a follower of Jesus, you were given, as surely as Matt Ryan has been given a new identity, you were given a new identity and a new life in Christ you have a new owner you have a new coach you play for a new team and just as Matt Ryan will take off his red jersey and put on a blue one we are told to take off that old mindset that, was, that existed in futility, that darkened our hearts, that resulted in calloused hearts and a darkened mind. We're told to take off that mindset and to put on the new. And then what Paul does, and this is so amazing, is he specifically lays out what that lifestyle looks like, what it looks like practically to put on the mind of Christ, how good that transformation really is. So here's what he says. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor because we're all members of one body. Now, falsehood is just simply pretense In other words, it can be pretending to be someone or something that you're not. Falsehood refuses to tell the truth. It bends, it distorts the truth. Falsehood is the opposite of transparency. You might say that falsehood actually hides the truth. It refuses to accept the truth. And what I want to paint a picture for this morning is that falsehood almost always rises up out of a selfish place. It is almost always driven by selfish ambition. So let me prove it. So let's, sometimes we lie just because it's convenient. And we don't have to do the hard work of telling the truth to somebody or the relational rebuilding that will need to happen if we tell them the truth. So we just live in falsehood because it just takes too much time and energy to tell the truth. There's a falsehood that's just motivated pure and simply by selfishness. In other words, I lie to get my way. I lie to get what I want. Maybe even when I want, how I want, where. I want, right? There's a falsehood mo- motivated by insecurity. So sometimes we'll lie, won't we, to impress other people, maybe to make other people think that we're more spiritual or more together or more intelligent than we really are. So we'll bend the truth in that way. Sometimes we lie to avoid punishment, just to save ourselves, because if the truth came out, I'd be in trouble. See, there's a falsehood that's even motivated by resentment. So I lie to manipulate other people or to put them in their place or to get revenge on them. see, Falsehood is all wrapped up in this sense of self-preservation, self-protection. It's associated with all these selfish and negative emotions. And notice why he says it is so important to speak truthfully. In other words, to to quit trafficking in falsehood and begin to traffic in truth-telling. He says, because we're members of one body. And what I love about this is when you read that, you go, well, what's the connection? I don't get it. We're members of one body. But here's what this tells us. Falsehood. Pretense, deceit, breaks trust. Lying undermines relationships because it's impossible to love someone if you don't trust them. It's impossible to be in a relationship with someone that you don't trust. And lying breeds distrust. So he says, look, we're members of one body. We're called to love one another. And you can't love anybody well if you're not telling the truth in those relationships. And then he goes on and he says this, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, I don't, even though I'm using the NIV, I don't love this translation here because it makes it seem like giving the devil a foothold is a different thing. And I don't believe that the, the, the original language allows for that. In other words, what I'm telling you is that when we get angry, When we uh, go to bed angry, night after night, he tells us that by doing that, in doing that, we are giving the devil a foothold in our one and only lives. So I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, notice that anger isn't necessarily bad or sinful or wrong on its own. I mean Jesus got angry right but he didn't sin so it's possible to be angry and yet not to sin that's why it says in your anger do not sin so here's the antidote do not let the sun go down on your anger don't let the sun in other words Don't live angry. Don't go to bed angry. Keep keep clear accounts with people. Because if you go to bed angry night after night after night, day after day after day, you won't just be angry, you will become anger. Anger will be the primary motivation of your one and only life and when that happens the devil is going to have a heyday in your life because you'll forego your better judgment you will maim people in the name of anger and all of us in the room I mean think about think about the person in your life who isn't just angry they've become anger I mean they just rage Some really, really hard things. And the primary result of that for him when he came home was anger. And my grandfather would drink to escape his anger. Now, the problem, and he would drink every day to escape his anger. Now, the problem with that was when he would drink, his anger would pour out. So I would go over there as a young man and he would. he would challenge me, he would belittle me, he would shake his fist at me, he would dare me, he tried his best to get me to fight with him when he was drunk. And all of us know somebody who doesn't just get angry, right? I mean, they've become anger. And the way you do that is you go to bed day after day, night after night, you don't even have to be really angry, you can just be a little bit angry let's if you need another example of this let's look no further than the headlines for this week right what happened last week at the oscars will smith in a moment of anger his life changed forever i mean you know the drill right in front of millions of people he got up and he struck another human being he was angry because that man made a joke about his wife now could will smith have been angry about a joke being made at his wife's expense but yet not sinned yes he could have right so he could have been angry but where he stepped over the line is he struck another human being now listen i'm not even dogging will smith i'm not i like will smith I like almost every body of work he's ever done. Will Smith only did in a moment of anger what any of us in this room are capable of doing in a moment of anger. So I'm not dogging him. But because he's high profile, right? That's going to because he's high profile, the consequences of that are going to be high profile. And so you can see firsthand what it looks like for someone to give the devil a foothold in their life. In fact, in his acceptance speech after the fact, he even referenced the devil. If you remember, he was quoting Denzel Washington and and actually even referenced the devil. And now Will Smith is going to have to live with the consequences of giving the devil a foothold in his life so my counsel to you and to me would be hey let's learn from his high profile mistake and even though our lives are less high profile even though our lives are much more private I mean just consider this if that can happen with somebody to somebody with that much money and that much power and that much fame then the devil can certainly get a foothold in your your life or mine so uh, this is a really, really big deal. Now, one more thing as we just think on this illustration for a moment. So a lot of us would assume, well, you know, Will, Will Smith just got angry in a moment. He was angry enough to strike another human being in front of millions of people. But I would argue that that was not the case. I would argue that the reason that was so powerful in his life was because for years, maybe even for decades, not a lot, but every night, Will Smith went to bed just a little bit angry about this or a little bit anger about that. And over time, that anger became so powerful that it overrode his better judgment in a public moment. I'm arguing that it didn't just rise up I'm telling you that it was already there. It just came out. See, this is why it is so, so important to steer clear of things like bitterness and resentment because that's those are the kinds of decisions that you make in a moment when you do that. Now, and Paul isn't even done. Listen to the final thing he says as he talks about putting on this new mind or this new lifestyle. He says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Now this is so incredible to me. What Paul is actually saying is he is saying that the gospel actually has the power to transform something like greed into generosity he is saying that uh that it's so transformational that it will it will take people that are uh just committed to taking and it will transform them into people that are committed to sharing with others and this is mind-blowing to me so uh So let's just kind of talk about what that looks like. So he says, he who is stealing must steal no longer. Now, why do people steal? Well, they steal because they either need or want something that someone else has. So their primary concern, and and by the way, what is greed? Because some of you are like, well, wait, how do you, how how is that greed? Well, greed is, is just an overarching concern for, or love of, or need for money and things. So in the case of stealing, someone is so obsessed over a certain thing, they're so concerned about it, they have to have it, so they're willing to take that from someone else. You see? So it's greed now and what's so here's what's so interesting to me about this we're we're used to kind of thinking well if somebody somebody steals because you know they need to because like they're in poverty they're living in scarcity so maybe they need that so what that tells us is that even people who live in scarcity or even people who have very little can still be greedy In fact, when Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against every kind of greed, he was talking to Jewish peasants. He was talking to people that made pennies a day. But he was still concerned that they could be greedy. So he says, he who is stealing must steal no longer. Uh, And then he says, but must instead work with his or her hands that we may share with those in need. Now, it's so interesting to me because I think an assumption that people make related to generosity and sharing or giving is that they they, kind of say this to themselves. Here's the story they tell themselves. And maybe you've, I, I know I've certainly told myself this story. You probably have too. When I make more, I will give more. Or, you know, I'll give out of my abundance. You know, when God blesses me abundantly, that's when I'll begin to give. Now, here's what we know about generosity. Generosity is not motivated by abundance. It's not. We know this. I can prove it to you. It is a fact that uh, wealthier people, people who have higher incomes, actually give less a percentage of their salary to charity. They actually give, so in other words, people who make far less give far more percentage-wise of their salaries than do the wealthy. Abundance does not bring or contribute to generosity. Do you know what does? Trust does. The trust that if I give, if I, if I become less so that someone else can become more, That if I have less, that if I'm giving away more, that God will still provide for me. That I could trust him with my future regardless of how much or how little I may have in the bank. See, generosity does not flow out of abundance. It flows out of trust. And so let me ask you a question. How are you doing when it comes to trusting God with your stuff, with your money, and with your things? And and here's something else that's amazing about these verses. So the way we're used to thinking about work is we say, well, I go to work so that I can provide for myself And so that I can provide for my family, right? And and I think that's certainly true. That's a part of what it means to work. But these verses say work is far more important than even just that. Paul is telling us in these verses that work becomes the means by which we can be generous with others. In other words, work isn't meant to just bless me. It isn't just meant to bless my family. It's meant to be a vehicle that God uses in my life to bless other people, people who have less, people who can do less. And this would apply to both my money and my things. So in other words, this might involve giving somebody an old car that you no longer need. It might involve renting somebody a house at a bargain so they can get their sea legs back under them. Uh, so that they can begin, you know, to live better and live right. I mean, in other words, it isn't just a mindset of sharing our wealth or even our scarcity with other people. It's a mindset of sharing all of our things in a way that meets the needs of other people. So, how are you doing with that? Or is it just about you? Is it just about your needs and your family's needs see paul tells us there's such power in the gospel to transform people's hearts from greed to generosity and listen to me i just want to be clear greed and scarcity are a form of bondage generosity is liberation it is it is freedom from things. It is freedom from materialism. Cuz materialism works like everything else. The more you buy, the more storage you need. So then you got to build bigger barns, right? And then okay, now I've got a little more room. Now I can throw more stuff in my barn. See, this is the allure of materialism and I'm just telling you friends, materialism will cause you to systematically walk your way away from Jesus. It will. If you get into minds, in that mindset, it will hold on to you, and it will not let you go. Generosity is liberation. Generosity is life. So, and here's why this last piece is so important. So I want you to dial back in if you've dialed out. It's so important because Jesus met your need he was willing to share in your need and he gave everything he gave everything he didn't just give a little he just didn't give a surplus he just didn't hand over the leftovers he gave it all to meet your need and mine we serve a crazy crazy generous God that's our Jesus right? Um, so it isn't that he asks us to share with those in need. Uh, he, he's saying that because he wants us to be like his son. He wants us to be like Jesus who modeled that by meeting your need and mine by giving away everything. I mean it was it cost him his very life. He literally gave everything for you And one of the ways that we remember how generous that God has been with us is this thing called communion. So in a few minutes, we're actually going to take communion together, and we're really going to do it today together. So we're going to do communion differently than we have in the past. So uh, kind of dial in, make sure you're paying attention so you kind of know how to follow along today. So we're actually going to receive communion together. We're going to take communion All at once, all together, I'm going to prompt us to take it. And I'm going to lead us and guide us through it today so that we're doing it as a family, so that we're doing it in community today all at once. Now, typically, what we ask you to do is to come forward in one of these three rows or to go to one of the back stations, which are still there today, pick that up, and then either come to the balcony or go back to your seat and take communion at your own discretion. But today, what we're going to ask you to do is pick it up, whether you do it in the back or the front, go back to the sides, go back to your seats and we're going to ask you to hold on to that until um, I prompt you so that we can remember how crazy generous our Jesus has been with us so that we can do that together okay so in a minute I'm going to pray for us and then um, we'll invite you to come up take your communion go back to your seat and hold on to it let me pray for us first Papa I'm amazed. God, I'm amazed at the power of the gospel to transform hearts and minds and lives. And so, God, would you just do that work here today in each of us? Help us each to go home with a little different heart, a heart more sensitive to you, a heart less calloused, uh, less darkened. Uh, Let us go home today with less futility in our thinking as we uh, embrace just your crazy generosity in giving us purpose, meaning, um, uh, just not even just for today, but for all our lives. And so God, Lord Jesus, we thank you and help us remember well in these next few moments together, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. You, You tell us in your word, Jesus, that as often as we do this, we're to do it to remember you. So Lord Jesus, Don't let us just go through the mechanics today, but help us to remember you well and to remember you well together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so now come and receive and then go back and wait.